Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. What would you do if you had all the money that you ever needed or all the money you ever wanted to have? What would you do if you never had to face any kind of societal conflict? What would you do if you had the ability to outsource anything in your life that you didn't want to immediately deal with? It's interesting questions to ask ourselves because in a way we're asking, what would you do if you had all the money you could ever need, all the time you ever wanted, and also you lived in a reality of perpetual peace? What would you do? What would your life look like if all of those things could be yours? The second question is, would you be happy if all of those things were your reality? Now, what if I told you that somebody has already tried this? Well, you might say, yeah, well, even if they tried it, I could probably do a better job than the person who's tried this before because they probably don't have the same kind of priorities, the same kind of utopian dreams that I conjure up in my mind of the what ifs in my life. Well, what if I told you that the person who's already tried this was also deemed the wisest person to ever live, so any possibility that you would have done a better job than this person is already thrown out the window. Well, of course, you know, we're in the book Ecclesiastes, and the book Ecclesiastes is historically considered to be written by Solomon, who, of course, is uh, noted as the wisest person to ever live, humanly speaking, at least. And Solomon, as he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, seems to kind of communicate to us a fireside chat in his old age, a memoir of the... uh, full set of circumstances that surrounded his life. You remember that Solomon is given great riches, unlike his father, who's fleeing for his life most of the time. You remember that Solomon, instead of fleeing for his life most of the time, lives during an age of peace. And you remember that Solomon has so much at his disposal that essentially anything that he didn't want to do, he could outsource. 
to whoever was willing to do it, and he was willing to pay. So Solomon had all the money he ever needed, all the time he ever wanted, and he lived in peace so that he could possibly enjoy those things. Well, Solomon invites us here in Ecclesiastes in an obscure passage to communicate to us the rat race of the human experience. And Solomon wants us to know three things about this rat race of the human experience. Number one, we're guilty by association. Number two, when wisdom stares us in the face, we turn a blind eye to it. And number three, we're guilty by participation. Now, this sounds like a very uh, uh, negative sermon. It sounds like, where is the hope here? Uh, But what I want to also show you is the way that Solomon gives us a lens uh, and a framework to look beyond this rat race of life uh, to true wisdom and true hope. So that's what we're going to try to do this evening considering Ecclesiastes 9, verses 11 through 18. So we'll consider verses 11 and 12 first, and that is the fact that humanity is guilty by association. Solomon begins by saying, again, I saw that under the sun, and then he proceeds to talk about whatever situation it is he's about to present to us. We're kind of jumping in uh, more than halfway through this book, And this book is filled with all kinds of opinions out there as to whether or not Solomon actually wrote it, whether these are the words of a cynic, whether this is a faith-filled book, and if it has any hope whatsoever. But we're picking things up um, kind of right in the middle of an argument where Solomon essentially takes the human experience, he puts it on a pie chart, he divides all the different categories of the human experience up, and he's kind of dealing with one slice at a time. He's kind of doing a panorama view of the human experience. So now he turns to this next consideration, and that's where he says, again, I saw that under the sun, and he's going to present to us this vicious cycle, this rat race of the human experience. He says, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. This is that rat race of the human experience. We might want to maybe modify the words a little bit and present it in more of a a contemporary uh, flavor. We might say it this way. Here's Solomon's discouraging verdict. The early bird does not always get the worm. Wars are not always won by brute force in large numbers. Book smarts and street smarts are not the same thing. There is no necessary correlation between somebody's IQ and somebody's bank account. And most of us have experienced this firsthand if you work in the corporate world. Promotions do not always come to the most qualified. This is the experience of the human life. This is the thing that we live and breathe that we are up close and personal with every single day. We experience these things. Well, maybe you might not think of them in that kind of framework. Maybe yours is, we're thinking here about the end of the year and we're moving into the new year. So the way that we kind of wrestle with these personal rat race syndromes is to start during this time of year thinking about New Year's resolutions. And most of the time, New Year's resolutions are concerned with the fact that we need more money, or we need more time, or we have too much conflict in our lives. We've got to figure out how to mitigate those things. 
we got to move all of the stuff out of the way to find out how to be more happy, to find deeper meaning in our lives. We might say, if I only knew more things, if I only had more stuff, if I only had more time to complete these projects or these uh, kind of things that I want to do in my life. And Solomon says, this is the human experience. Now, maybe you've never heard of the phrase rat race before. You could think about rat race in terms of the fact that everybody is caught up in the nine to five Monday to Friday system. This is most people's experience. We could say that this experience of the rat race, in a manner of speaking, is the Genesis 3 experience. It's the toil. It's the thorns and thistles. And so as humanity kind of progresses along history, we've tried to figure out how can we uh, kind of push away as many thorns and thistles as we can possibly come up with. How can we clear the land? How can we have a less uh, toil experience? Well, think about ways that we've tried to do that. We've come up with things like air conditioning. I mean, I'd have a hard time even imagining a world where there was no air conditioning. Uh, Most corporate jobs, most uh, regular careers have air conditioning. We're enjoying air conditioning here, even right now. And there's so many things like that that we have done to mitigate uh, the toil. There's a book that came out over 10 years ago now called The 4-Hour Workweek. And the idea in that book that's promoted to us is the fact that now that we have technology, now that we have internet, you could essentially earn all of the money that you ever want and all the time you ever need. You can cut your 40-hour work week down to about four hours, and as you make more money, as you go to kind of international waters here with your business, you can outsource all the things that you don't want to deal with. And so you earn all the money, you earn all the time, and you've solved the toil. You've solved the thorns and thistles of life. What's so fascinating about that book, and the reason I have this book in my mind is because I recently had to do a project on this book, so I had to read it. What's interesting is as you get to the end of this book, now here's a non-Christian presenting uh, some interesting business ideas, but as he gets to the end of the book and he's trying to answer the why would you want to do this, he says something very interesting. He says, after we've cut out all the noise in our lives, after we've kind of gotten rid of the... uh, Uh, up close and personal conflicts that we wrestle with, after we've gained all this time, gained all this money, very quickly we start to ask ourselves the big questions now that we've cleared the air, what is the meaning of my life? And interestingly enough, the author, who's not a Christian, has this summary. It's a flawed question that we can't answer. Therefore, what we should do is do what makes us happy. So he builds up this huge system and says, you're going to pretty soon have to deal with what's the meaning of life. Then he says, but we can't answer that. We don't need to worry about that that answer anyways. So just keep doing what makes you happy. Find your own meaning. Well, some people say that that is actually a good framework for what is said to us in Ecclesiastes. Some people say that the book of Ecclesiastes is a negative book that essentially says it doesn't matter what you do because nothing's ever going to work. So just go on about your merry way because everybody's going to die. That's kind of the summary of Ecclesiastes. And this uh, passage in particular might seem to present that to us in the next phrase because what is said to us is this, but time and chance happen to them all. The race is not to the swift, 
etc., etc. Time and chance is really what rules the world. Being in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time, that is the essence of the human experience. Now, unfortunately, when we read that, we might think that this is a negative presentation of the human experience. But I want to call your mind back. You don't have to turn here. But I want to call your mind back to chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. This passage is very famous. Songs have been written about a time for everything. And we have presented to us in verse 1 of chapter 3, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. What's presented to us back there is the fact that God is the one who rules over everything. God is the one that appoints all times for all things according to his purposes. So actually, it's a little misguided here, uh, at least in the ESV and even some other translations, because time and chance seem to communicate a godless world. But in fact, if we just broke those two terms up, we could see that time has to do with something coming to pass. Again and again in the Bible, that word time is translated as something coming to pass. And it's always talking about God's providential appointment of something. So it's assuming that God is at work. And chance is actually better translated almost every other instance in the Old Testament where this term is used. It is translated as misfortune, disaster, or evil. We might say it this way. What is spoken to us in terms of the idea of chance is the reality of the fall. The fall of man, the curse that's put upon us. So in some ways, we could say what Solomon is saying to us is not that there is no God, there is no purpose, there is no overruling reality here, but actually what he's saying is no matter how hard humans run the rat race of life, you can't escape the reality that we live in a fallen world. You can try to mitigate those circumstances in your own life. You can try to boil them down to the lowest common denominator. You can cut your 40-hour work week down to four hours. You can do whatever it is that you think is going to be the secret recipe, the silver bullet. But the fact is, the reality of the fall happens to all. And we can't escape it, no matter how hard we try. We live in a post-Genesis 3 world, and we can't get back to Genesis 2 or Genesis 1. We are living post-Genesis 3, and Solomon wants to remind us of this because mankind repeatedly tries to blunt the edges of toil, and it's to no avail. Solomon says we're guilty by association because we find ourselves caught up in this. We can't be born outside of it. We're born into the toil. We're born into this reality. Verse 12, man does not know his time. I remember working for the government, a civil service job. We repaired submarines, a big uh, shop that did not have air conditioning, full of uh, mechanics and machinists. There was an older guy there who was well past retirement age. So what he did was, instead of retiring and uh, kind of living out the rest of his days, he decided, I'm going to retire take the retirement, then I'm going to get rehired as a direct hire and kind of have my cake and eat it too. So we're there in our kind of weekly safety meeting, and this guy suddenly has a massive stroke, dies as soon as he gets to the hospital. 
what is the point of that kind of a life? When we try to orient the circumstances of our life to try to outsmart the human experience, not only that we're all caught up in a rat race that we can't escape, but a deeper reality of something we can't escape is that man does not know his time. Now, that's an extreme example, but presumably he didn't wake up that day thinking this is my last day to live. Presumably, when he was able to retire, he didn't think, I better take the retirement now and live out the rest of my days away from this toil because I don't know when I'm going to draw my last breath. Instead, he was hedging his bets on just kind of uh, continuing along the financial security system, and suddenly he found himself out of time. Man does not know his time. Solomon wants to remind us of this. It's not only that the circumstances, the secret recipe for success, often doesn't work out the way that we want it to, but even if it did, we don't know how many days we've been given. We don't know which one's going to be our last. And that's not because time and chance, these kind of abstract ideas, are what rules the day, but it's because no matter what humanity wants to do, It is actually God's overarching purposes that are at work. We can't escape them, and we can't thwart them, and we can't rearrange them and repackage them in something more beautiful than what we think he's doing. Solomon presents it in a very negative way. Fish taken in an evil net, birds caught in a snare. Children of man, in the same way, are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon him. So here's the under the sun reality of the human experience. We're guilty by association and we can't escape uh, this kind of uh, negative experience. We can't escape the reality of the fall. The fall happens to all. So now Solomon transitions into verses 13 through 16 and he begins to give us an example that should provide some help. It should provide some relief from such a kind of morbid view of the human experience. Uh, But he tells us, uh, even though this should help us, he tells us in verses 13 to 16 that humanity often turns a blind eye to wisdom. I have seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. So he's, he's kind of priming us. He's now contrasting kind of the vanity of the human experience to an example of wisdom. He's transitioning from folly to wisdom here. And what he does is he kind of presents to us a mini parable, if you will. In verses uh, 14 and 15. Now, whether or not he's thinking of an actual event here is unclear, but he's at least trying to teach us a lesson in verses 14 and 15. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So there's our storyline. There's our parable. He just simply describes it in just a couple sentences. A little city, a great king and a great kingdom coming against that city. Uh, they're well, um, well in the uh, kind of uh, prevailing uh, number so that there's no chance, uh, numerically speaking, that this king and this kingdom uh, are not going to overthrow and destroy the city. But there's a poor wise man in this city. And he, though outnumbered, delivers the city. And Solomon says, sadly, after everything is said and done, no one remembered that poor man. Verse 16 is the takeaway. 
What are we supposed to understand? He says, wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So we might say it this way, if we want to kind of translate that whole scenario into our own uh, lives. Even though we're kind of uh, condemned, if you will, to the rat race of the human experience, there are often interruptions of wisdom that come at us. We might say it this way, that even though we as fallen creatures uh, deny God, we despise God, we don't naturally love God in our fallen condition, that God still reveals himself to us again and again. Think of natural revelation. You can't open your eyes. Uh, You can't uh, open your eyes without seeing the glory of God's creation. And Romans 1 certainly speaks of that. Uh, We can see God at work. We can see his reality in the created order. But there's also another way in special revelation. Even those who despise God are always uh, kind of brought to the reality of who he is in the fact that there are churches essentially on every street corner. Uh, People understand and know Bible verses, even if they don't have any love for God. And these, we might say, are kind of interruptions of wisdom, uh, kind of a a shocking therapy, if you will, uh, to snap humanity out of the rat race, out of the drudgery. But Solomon says, even when true wisdom is on display, people often turn a blind eye to it, even when it's staring them in the face. No sooner was this city delivered by this poor man. We don't know what means he utilized, uh, but he was poor and he was wise. Contrast that with rich and strong. And because he wasn't rich and strong, the things that remember earlier on in verse 11, that's all the stuff that people are going after. Strength, riches, might, power, time. Because this man didn't encapsulate those things, no sooner did he deliver the city than they forgot all about him. They went on about their merry way. No sooner did wisdom meet these people in the face than they turned a blind eye to it. Now let's move on to the fact that not only is humanity guilty by association, but humanity is guilty by participation. And that's what Solomon tells us in verses 17 and 18. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. We might say it this way in the human experience, that even though there are no silver bullets, uh, there is a silver lining at work. Solomon is giving us a lesson filled with bad news here, but he also gives us an encouragement that even though wisdom is often ignored, often a blind eye is turned to wisdom, that doesn't um, destroy the value of it. Just because you don't see wisdom at work, you see people often go the way of folly, we often go the way of folly, that doesn't mean that wisdom is useless and meaningless. He says, despite the prevailing opinions, despite the prevailing thrust of humanity in this post-Genesis 3 world, wisdom still stands as a glorious gift of God. Think about the way that Solomon presents wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Folly, foolishness, is essentially the, the drunken stupor yelling at the top of their lungs, whereas wisdom is presented as the beautiful, still, small voice of reason. The prevailing noise is folly, it's foolishness. 
You could look anywhere you want and you're going to be pulled towards folly in this life. But wisdom, even though it's um, outmatched in number, is still more precious in terms of what it is. And he says essentially the same thing in verse 17. Wisdom heard in quiet is better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. And then verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. We might say that we know verse 18 is true because it only took one sinner to destroy all the good. Genesis 3, I've been referring to it again and again. It only took the downfall of Adam. Certainly we can include Eve in that, but um, Adam is the responsible party. Adam is the leader. Adam is the head of the house. And it only took one sinner, Adam himself, to destroy all that God had previously called Good And so we have launched by his one act of disobedience, uh, the reality of a destructive and a destructed world. Uh, And friends, we are just like him. In fact, we could say that we're worse because we keep doing it again and again. Now, of course, I'm speaking of humanity as a whole here. We might say I would have done better than Adam, but we probably would have done far worse than Adam. And we could look at the track record of our lives and say that's, that's very true. And so we point the finger at Solomon and we say, if we had all the stuff he had, we would have done it better. Scripture says actually no. If we point the finger at Adam, we would say that we wouldn't have done what he did in the garden. And Scripture says actually you would. They say it this way in terms of the rat race of life. Even if you win the rat race and you get the piece of cheese at the end of the maze, the bad news is you're still a rat. So what is the verdict? Is Solomon essentially telling us that all of this is meaningless? Is he saying at best, you're just going to be a little bit better rat than the rest of the rats? Well, I don't think so. I think what Solomon is doing here is he's presenting us a raw, real look at the human experience. And he's saying we're looking for fixes in all the wrong places. And I should know because I've had all of these things that I've talked about at the same time and I can reflect at the end of my days, that's not where true wisdom is. That's not where the silver bullet can be found. And so what Solomon is doing, and of course we're only taking a section of the book, but he's catapulting us to look beyond. He's catapulting us. He's saying the human experience is kind of stuck and cemented under the sun We can't escape the fishbowl, as it were, but what God wants us to do is to look beyond the sun, to look beyond the horizontal reality that we have been imprisoned into because of our own sinfulness and disobedience. So what is the takeaway from all of this? Well, Solomon, the man of wisdom, is not the end of the story of wisdom in the Bible. In fact, wisdom, the true son of David, a greater Solomon, is what Solomon himself is looking forward to, what Solomon himself is eventually going to get his readers in the book of Ecclesiastes to consider. We are kind of burdened into the human experience. We're guilty by our circumstances. We're guilty by our participation uh, to further the reality of decline. But all of that should wake us up to those shock treatments of wisdom, to look beyond the noise, to look beyond all of the distractions of this life and realize that our hope can be found 
in God. And that's exactly what we're told all throughout the New Testament. The queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The one greater than Solomon, of course, Jesus Christ himself. It's interesting if we kind of work our way back through this passage, it's interesting to see the way that we can kind of reevaluate the seemingly bad news in light of Jesus himself, the greater Solomon. In verses 11 and 12, Solomon is essentially warning us of the downfall of all the things that humanity uh, gravitates toward and essentially reminding us that every one of us will have to meet our maker face to face and we don't know when that is. Well, interestingly enough, Jesus essentially says the same exact thing. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. Jesus, the greater Solomon, says exactly what Solomon himself says, that man does not know his time. Jesus, the man of wisdom, wants to reiterate that fact. We can even look at the parable that's presented to us in verses 14 and 15. The a greater city, uh, vast in number, comes to pounce upon this little city with few people in it, and yet there's a poor wise man in that city that delivers them from the tyranny of the greater city. Uh, Jesus, in the prophecy from Zechariah, speaking of his coming, is said to us as one that is coming not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What Jesus is going to do in his earthly ministry as the greater Solomon is not going to be deemed as a mighty thing to the world. The prevailing opinion is not going to be that's a powerful and mighty man. He's going to do things in a different order than what is supposed. And actually, like the poor man in this parable, Jesus' own wisdom was despised. The people forgot about the poor man's wisdom. They didn't like it. They moved on to bigger and better things. And the same things were said about Jesus. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Essentially, the crowd said about Jesus, Isn't this the poor carpenter boy? What do we have to deal with, with with this guy? Who cares what he's saying? We don't like this wisdom that he's presenting. And so they despised it. They moved on to bigger and better things. But just as Solomon was this uh, descendant of David, king of Israel, elevated to the throne, Isaiah the prophet himself says that where Solomon failed to be the perfect son of David, there's a greater son of David And Jesus fits the bill. Jesus excels in all of these things. From the stump of Jesse, uh, one who will will come, that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Now, if we looked at the totality of Jesus' earthly ministry, we could actually just try to remember the last evening, few evening services that we've spent together in the book of 1 Corinthians. And what does Paul the apostle say again and again? God's wisdom is deemed as folly to the world. The ministry of the cross is deemed as foolishness. It's not impressive. Where's the wisdom? Where's the might here? It seems counterintuitive. It doesn't seem uh, like something that we should care about. 
But what we find in the ministry of Jesus, something uh, that seems to be counterintuitive to the human experience, to the verses 11 and 12, the rat race that we're caught up in, we hope that Jesus is going to come so he can help us get those things. We hope Jesus will come so he can kind of speed things along in our toil. But what we find is that Jesus actually comes to free us from the rat race altogether. Solomon says, we're all caught in it. We can't escape it. So most people just decide how to get to the goal, how to win the reward as fast as possible, as quickly as possible, or with as much resources left over after we've gotten it. This time of year when we're not only thinking about New Year's resolutions, but we're caught up in the hustle and bustle of life, right? We celebrate uh, Thanksgiving together. The very next day, we trample people to death because towels are on sale. We have these strange silver bullets. It's the human experience. It's the natural inclination of the human heart to be fixed upon the horizontal. And Jesus comes and everybody wants him to be fixed upon the horizontal, but he wants to get us from our entrapment under the sun and free us to God himself, to remove us from the folly and the vanity of the race altogether. Jesus doesn't make us wise rats. He makes us children of God. He frees us from the folly. He frees us from the toil. We're still here. We still have to experience it, but we're not enslaved and imprisoned to it. Though Satan would want us to gravitate back towards the slavery that tempts us each and every day. And most importantly, when we think about Jesus' incarnation during this time of the year, we're looking forward not only to the fact that Jesus came in the midst of the human uh, experience, Not only the fact that he came flesh and blood as a man, but that incarnation, his appearance and his coming alongside us, Emmanuel, God with us, is anticipating all of the things that he's going to do. It's anticipating his perfect life of obedience. It's anticipating the counterintuitive death on the cross to free us. It's anticipating his burial, anticipating his resurrection, anticipating his ascension. And the Apostle Paul tells us that in a world of foolishness, in a world of folly, Jesus Christ himself becomes for us the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 131. So friends, the world wants us to be stuck under the sun. The world wants us to live again and again in this perpetual rat race of meaninglessness. The world wants us to be fixed upon the horizontal. But dear Christian, remember the fact that Jesus Christ has freed you from the rat race. He's freed you from the self-imposed toil, the toil that you're guilty by association as well as participation. And he's brought us to an elevated place where he himself is seated at the right hand of God. And God himself calls us dear children, sons and daughters of the most high God. So friends, remember the fact that Jesus Christ himself has freed us from the race. And if you have been set free, you are free indeed. Amen. Let's pray.